0: Brothers and sisters, let's return in our Bibles to the book of Genesis in the third chapter. And I'll also be looking with you at a New Testament passage. It's found in First Timothy chapter 2. Genesis is easier to find. First book of the Bible. Uh, 1 Timothy 2 is on page 1178 if you're using the Pew Bible. And I'll be looking at both of these passages as I read. been studying very sobering events recorded in Genesis chapter 3, we come to the defining moment, and I'll read just verse 6, and I'll not even read the entirety of verse 6, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, this is the word of God, so, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. now turn to 1st Timothy chapter 2. 1st Timothy 2, I'll begin reading at verse 8. And I'll read through the end of the chapter, 1st Timothy 2. Apostle Paul writing, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women, who profess godliness with good works. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once again. Needy indeed are we, O Lord, preacher, Here alike, and so abide with us. Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, open our hearts to your word, our mouths to proclaim it faithfully. We pray that you will enthrone yourself in our hearts afresh. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Our Presbyterian Westminster Fathers, spoke of this defining moment in Genesis chapter 3 when they said in the Shorter Catechism, our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. The sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created was their eating. The forbidden fruit. So, I really don't need to tell this congregation the cosmic significance of Genesis 3 6, or of what it reports to us. Uh, You and I speak of actions or decisions that change our lives forever. We talk about events that alter the course of human history and What happens in Genesis 3 6 is all of that and more. So last week we studied with its own horror the lying and scheming ways of the tempter. That was last week. We looked at the temptation of Eve. And as we return to our text this morning, we're going to consider, maybe even with greater horror, the fall of Eve, the first sin of mankind. But brothers and sisters, we want to focus in particular on Satan's success in tempting Eve. We want to look at the deception of Eve, most particularly, and learn all we can as sinners who have faced the same foe that she did. We'll divide our time under these heads. Why Eve ate... What Satan knew, and how we can escape the deception of Eve. So, why Eve ate, and as I ask the question, why Eve ate, I am by no means ignoring the fact that Adam ate as well. The rest of verse 6 makes this quite clear, and might be appropriate to, for me to say, I have a whole sermon planned for next Lord's Day, God willing. To focus on Adam's role in the whole affair. Uh, But almost all the attention of our text thus far rests on the factors that lead up to Eve deciding personally. To eat. The words by the serpent are represented as spoken to Eve. The thoughts of Eve, in response to the serpent's words are what are given to us in verse 6. And she is the one recorded for us as eating the forbidden fruit first. So the question's a fair one. Why did she do it? And the answer can be summed up in a word. Eve was deceived. Now, that'll be her testimony later in the chapter. Verse 13, she will say, The serpent deceived me and I ate. That testimony that Eve gives of why she ate is confirmed by the Apostle Paul in more than one place. Second Corinthians chapter 11, he says to the Corinthians, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray. A sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And then we read from 1 Timothy chapter 2, where the apostle there as well says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Uh, folks, I actually don't think we need all the later clarification and commentary, although it's exceedingly helpful. I would submit to you that Moses himself, even as he records what he does in verse 6, is pointing us to this very fact. He's not only given us the deceiving words, he's also making clear how those words registered in her heart and thoughts. Moses puts it in, I came increasingly to think, a very striking way when he records what he does in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. Now that is not an, a theological, ethical perspective so much on what Eve does. Uh, some of us might have rendered it something like this thinking in our post-mortem diagnosis. So the woman allowed doubt about the goodness of God and the consequences of sin to lodge in her heart. She took to herself the prerogative to judge for herself what is good and to deny God's right to either require or forbid. Actually, I think that actually is true, and I think that'll preach, but that's not what Moses says. He's not actually diagnosing it from a so much theological, ethical perspective. He actually, look again at verse 6, he gives an in-the-moment description of what's happening in her heart. With the words of the serpent still ringing in her ears, and the fruit there before her eyes, it's as if Moses is inviting us to look at the fruit... Through her eyes. And she sees. The fruit was good for food. We've already had occasion to comment on this. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil wasn't a tree laden with poisonous fruit. It had physically nourishing qualities. She sees that. She sees that the fruit is a delight to the eyes. So whatever's hanging on those branches, and we don't know precisely... Uh, they're not potato ugly. It's something beautiful. Something. It's the kind of food that you get hungry looking at it, you might say. And she sees that the fruit was desirable to make one wise. So this, recall, is a sacramental tree. When our fathers speak this way about the tree of life as well as the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, uh, they're saying that by God's ordinance, these were two trees that were intended by him to convey spiritual realities, spiritual effects to those he ate. They would convey things, if you will, to the soul, not only the body. As I've just read and reread verse 6, thinking about What Moses is doing, it it almost sounds like he's describing Eve's thoughts and deeds in verse 6 with a kind of tragic sympathy. No, 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 no. Not in any way excusing her morally for what she does in high handed disobedience. Not that but with a kind of sad awareness that what Eve did, she did because she was deceived. As we're going to see, the Bible is far harder on Adam than on Eve. For this reason, he was not deceived. So why did Eve eat the forbidden fruit? It's because she thought It would be good for her. And she was deceived. That's why Eve ate. Let's look next second at what Satan knew. This may seem like a digression. I hope it will be a profitable one if it is that. We're going to be coming back to lessons for all of us. From Eve's deception, particularly how we can avoid being deceived as Eve was deceived. We'll be coming back to that in a moment, but I want to step back with you and consider this question that's raised in the text itself to many of us, and certainly raised by the Apostle Paul, why is it that it was Eve, deceived by the serpent, and not Adam? You'll want to have 1 Timothy 2. Uh, open at this point, the passage that I read just a moment ago. And uh, we've turned to this passage before, back in chapter two, and I said to you then, this may about well be one of the Apostle Paul's most unpopular sayings in all the Bible these days. It's a favorite proof text by skeptics of the Bible that Paul was a male chauvinist. But I think, as I preach in this congregation, Not only will you have a higher view of Scripture than that, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, but you'll have a higher view of the man, the Apostle Paul, than that. For all that we know of him, it should seem highly unlikely that Paul is just making a backhanded slap at women like a male chauvinist might. As if Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 2, women shouldn't be church leaders because after all, they got us into this mess. That's not only a non sequitur, but it contradicts what Paul says in other places where he places the responsibility squarely on Adam's shoulders. So, folks, we ought to be prepared for the Apostle Paul to be saying something much more thoughtful, much more insightful. under the inspiration of the Spirit about what's happening in the garden. So, in 1 Timothy 2, Paul's making an argument against female leadership in the church. He says that in verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And after giving this Rule to his colleague, Timothy, as Timothy is a pastor and, you might say, church planter eventually. He then goes on to appeal to Genesis, both one, or sorry, both two and three, Genesis chapters two and three, in making his point about the impropriety of female church leadership. Uh, In verse 13, he appeals to the circumstances of creation. Adam was formed first. In verse 14, he appeals to the circumstances of the fall. Adam was not deceived, but Eve was. We're looking at chapter 2, and I was looking with you at the creation of Eve. After God created Adam, I went to this passage to give a greater clarity to the design of God in making man and woman. I'm interested today in Paul's second point in verse 14. What is it in the deception of Eve, that's what we're thinking of today, that corroborates in Paul's mind the necessity for male leadership in the church? And here's how I think we can get to the point Paul is making. Uh, It's by asking a question that may well have come to you already as you've Study Genesis 3, either here or on your own. And the question is, why did Satan, in the form of a serpent, approach Eve? And not Adam, as he sought to tempt. Now, you know enough about Satan, and the rest of the scripture, even in the way he's introduced in Genesis 3 as, as someone who is cunning. To recognize Satan sees an opportunity with Eve. It's unique. Uh, You remember Peter comparing Satan to a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. And you've watched enough nature shows to know that the lion doesn't usually go to the leader of the flock or herd goes to the one who's most vulnerable in making his attack. But that still leaves the question. Why did he regard Eve as more vulnerable than Adam? I'm asking this question because I think it's directly related to what Paul is saying. Now, some have answered the question by pointing out that Eve did not, by at least the record we have, in Genesis, did not receive directly from God the prohibition against the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you actually look closely, uh, Adam is the one who's created and first given the prohibition against eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then Eve is created. And we have to surmise that Eve gathered, she learned, she was taught by her husband not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. So some have surmised that Satan recognizes there's a vulnerability in Eve. She didn't hear it directly from God. That's the weak link that he's trying to exploit. I'm not sure it can be entirely established that Eve didn't hear this directly from God. But even if it is the case, I'm not sure it's relevant to our question. Because as Eve does respond to the serpent, she shows herself to be very well informed about what God had said and Remember, we talked about whether she exaggerates slightly over uh, uh, reports what God had forbidden. If that's the case, it's her own response to Satan's exaggerating of God's prohibition. It's not as if there's just been reported by her already sinful husband an exaggerated report, an unfaithful report of God. So I don't think that's the direction to go in seeking. Why would Satan... See, Eve has the greater opportunity as he comes into the garden to tempt. So, brothers and sisters, I submit Satan saw Eve as more vulnerable to his temptation for the simple fact that she was a woman. And Paul, the apostle, is seeing the same vulnerability in women. More generally. And that's what confirms in Paul's mind the wisdom of God in ordaining men to be the leaders of the church and the home. Now, hear me out on this, please. Consider with me what Satan would have known. Number one, Satan would have known God had called Adam and Eve to complementary roles. There at creation, in that cultural mandate that he has given to Adam and Eve, Adam would have particular responsibility to take dominion and to subdue the earth and all that is confrontational about that calling. And Eve would have a particular calling to be fruitful and multiply and all that is relational about that calling. And Satan would have known not only did they have two different callings, but they would have also been equipped constitutionally for those two callings, male and female, in ways that suited their roles. Adam would be given a temperament that equipped him to be the primary subduer of the earth. And Eve would be given a temperament as a woman that equipped her to be the helper of Adam and the nurturer of children. This Satan would have known. Satan would have known. Of the God given differences that exist to this day between men and women. They can be studied and documented and have been in fascinating ways in our research happy society. The greater orientation of men towards competition and confrontation, the greater orientation of women towards relationship and towards nurture, at Satan would have known this, Satan would have known that God created Adam as the leader in that relationship. Satan would have known that God created Eve as the follower in that relationship, and as Satan comes to the garden and chooses his victim, he doesn't want to be confronted over his blasphemy. He wants to be listened to And followed. What I'm saying. Is that Satan does something utterly despicable. In targeting Eve. He takes what is her strength and glory. As God has made her to be. Adam's helper. And he uses it against her. For her downfall. Eve is the one called by God to listen and follow her husband. Now Satan comes and says, listen and follow me. It's even more perverse than that. What Satan does by going to Eve. He's actually inviting Eve to reverse roles with Adam if Eve listens to his blasphemy and takes initiative in light of it, that's going to be the initiative of leadership. She will then invite her husband to follow her. She'll be acting contrary to what God has called her to and equipped her for. She'll be reversing the roles that God gave to her and to her husband. And Paul's point in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is that women in leadership Exposes the church to the same vulnerabilities as were there in the garden. Women leadership in the church involves the same kind of reversal that took place in the garden. This proves to be, actually, uh, the rather traditional church, tradi- uh, church interpretation of 1 Timothy 2. much re- uh, reviled in our day and much debated now, unlike in the past, within the church itself. I don't know how you get away from seeing Paul identifying in women, in his day, a greater of vulnerability to deception. And that's his point. But I do want to emphasize, brothers and sisters, Uh, We need to be careful, maybe more careful than the church has often been in this over the centuries, in how we speak of that greater vulnerability. You've heard the way I've spoken on it, but I've talked about it in terms of Eve's strength and glory being used against her. Our strengths can become weaknesses. That receptiveness to the personal influence of leadership that God gives to Eve. The glory. And is used against her by this despicable foe. Now, that by the way makes a great deal of sense of Paul in 1 Timothy. Because as Paul writes. You can see it in your own time. As he begins the whole letter. He's saying to Timothy. Watch out for the false teachers. Timothy. Watch out for the snakes in the grass. Timothy. They're coming against the church. He has in mind. The serpent and his temptation, his seduction, they have blasphemy. They have heresy. They need to be confronted no matter how likable they might otherwise be. And he says, Timothy, you need men in leadership to do that. They're the ones God has called and equipped to be protectors and defenders of the church against the evil one. Well, brothers and sisters, this little digression, if you like to think of it that way, is in light of the fact that the evangelical church is suffering the consequences of disobedience to scripture in this area. I realize it's not something our church or our tradition is wobbly on. I want you to have the context as you continue in your day to encounter animosity to Paul's now controversial statement. The context in Genesis chapter 3 that Paul is wisely, insightfully speaking to. Before I move on from what Satan knew, I do want to make a broader observation to all of us. We should expect... Satan's attacks to be aimed at our personal weaknesses and indeed to turn our strengths into our weaknesses. This is so like him to take what God has given that is glorious in itself and turn it against us. So, by the way, Satan is quite capable of taking men's strength, their inclinations towards confrontation, competitiveness, and turning it against them, to be sure. That's why most convicted felons are men. That's why most abuse comes to the hands of men. That's why schism in the church is typically led by proud men. God is taking that which is the strength and glory of the sex and turning it against them. So we should be watchful. Our strengths are our weaknesses in a world in which the enemy tempts. That's what Satan knew. Now let's look for the rest of our time at how we can escape the deception Of Eve. So Eve was deceived, and we've seen why Satan might rightly see her as more vulnerable to that deception. But, brothers and sisters, the scripture speaks of us as sinners as all liable to deception. So, what happened to Eve happens to all of us. And this is a drumbeat. Of the New Testament in particular, Paul says in another place, Do not be deceived. The righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking to the whole church. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. He's talking to all of us. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. He's talking to all of us. So, how do you be not deceived? How do you not? Be deceived. I think there's help for us in verse 6. As we look at the deception of Eve. Three things in the time that remains. In order to be not deceived, brothers and sisters, we must take care who we allow ourselves to listen to. That's one. That's number one. So, as Moses records for us the fall of Eve and then of her husband, the first step towards Eve's deception is her listening to the great blasphemer. She had what you might call an unprofitable conversation there in the garden with this speaking serpent. Someone has said it was the first recorded conversation about God. She was guilty of giving the tempter the opportunity to influence her. Folks, I'm going to say this to you as plainly as I can. The deceivers of this world, the devil and all of his offspring will get their just desserts, but you and I will be held accountable for lingering long enough to hear their words, placing ourselves in jeopardy of being deceived. So this whole call of the scriptures to resist the devil means nothing if it doesn't mean don't listen to him. Shut down the conversation. Whether it's the insinuations that he is capable of putting into your mind or as he did in the garden, using someone else or something else to speak his lies. Are you mindful of the moral responsibility that you have to plug your ears to certain influences in this world? I mean a moral responsibility to plug your ears. To not listen. Jeremiah says, on behalf of the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. What do you do when a false prophet is speaking to you? Well, maybe you put your earbuds in and listen to classical music. I don't... I was watching a couple walking as I drove into church this morning. It looked like a husband and wife. I I don't know what their relationship was, but they were walking. It was very romantic until I looked and saw that he had his earbuds in. That wasn't very romantic. Take your earbuds on a walk with your girlfriend or your wife, whatever. On the other hand, Maybe the listening that you're doing that's morally irresponsible is by means of those earbuds. I am staggered as a very finite pastor at the potential for so much cogent, cunning sophisticated influence going right into the two holes of the head of all my church members. We're not just talking about stupid song lyrics, which have their own influence, young people. There are lies in them too. But we're talking about really sophisticated liars, liars who are able to take 96% truth and 4% arsenic if you were here last Sunday. Or maybe the percentages are not quite so high. You may flatter yourself as you listen to all the pundits of our society. I'm a discerning listener, Pastor. I listen with a critical, discerning spirit. I trust you do. This is my point today. Do not fool yourself. Listening to a liar long enough brings deception. Full stop. The great propaganda machines of human history got that. You just make people listen long enough to a lie. They will be deceived. You're morally responsible You listen to liars, and the best liars tell largely, but not entirely, truth. In order to be not deceived, we must take care who we allow ourselves to listen to. Number two, in order to be not deceived, we must beware the tendency to trust our own judgment, or if you will, our own instincts. So in verse 6, again, you see Eve sizing up the fruit. Is it good for food? Check. Is it a delight to the eyes? Check. Is it able to make me wise? Check. And yes, she's still under the influence of the serpent, of course. But do you see what she's doing in verse 6? She's making up her own mind now. Satan can't make her do anything. He can tempt her. He can present to her the the world as he sees it, but he can't make her. She is a a free agent, as theologians like to say. So what's happening in verse 6 is she is forming her own independent opinion or judgment about the fruit. And that's exactly the problem. Independency of judgment is unbecoming child of God. The words of Proverbs 3, she's not trusting in the Lord. She's leaning on her own understanding. Or as we'd say, and frequently do use the expression, she's going with her gut on this one. That's what verse 6 is showing us. Friends, we have an astonishing amount of confidence in our own judgment Sometimes mere intuition. We have an astonishing amount of confidence in that. When we're in a moment, we're deciding, yes, no, right, wrong. And our culture says, go with it. You know what's right for you. You know, deep down, just dig. You'll, don't listen to anyone else. Just go with your heart. That's exactly what Eve does. So how do we not get deceived like Eve is deceived in this respect? Well, we have a healthy distrust of our own understanding, our own intuition, our own judgment. If Eve hadn't leaned on her own understanding, she wouldn't have been deceived. God had given her everything she needed to stand against this lie. Brothers and sisters, this is why prayer is so important in your life. Your ongoing, practical life. Prayer is not where you go and say, I'm listening, Jesus, just tell me what to do. No, we don't have that view of Revelation anymore. That would be another sermon for me to unpack. We don't pray because we're asking Jesus to tell us what to do. We pray in order to acknowledge him in all our ways. We pray in order to say, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do, and I'm asking you to give your spirit to me for my leaning line as I make this decision. That's why we seek godly counsel, as Eve didn't. What would have happened if Eve had said somewhere between verse 5 and 6 something along the lines of, Uh, Honey, dear, can I talk to you about something? That's why we seek godly counsel. That's why we ask the Lord to speak through those in our lives. That he's appointed as counselors. We say, Lord, I, I do not trust my own judgment. Above all, that's why we meditate constantly on the word of God. That's why we take it in day by day. You know that there are two great epic moments of temptation in the Bible. We're looking at the first. It's the first temptation. Adam and Eve. The second great epic moment where everything's on the line is when Satan comes and tempts your Savior. Matthew chapter 4. Many have compared the two temptations, and I've not done that in this series. One thing I do want you to note, even our sinless Lord Jesus shows that as he responds to the serpent, he's leaning upon God's word. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If Jesus shows such a tight tether to the word of God, ours needs to be even tighter. I'll rest my case there. Third, in order to be deceived, we must not allow our desires to gain mastery over our convictions so Eve with Adam was at one time utterly convinced not eating of that tree to becoming convinced it would be good to eat of that tree. How did these convictions change? Moses wants us to see in verse 6 of chapter 3 that this was not just a merely intellectual thought, experiment kind of process for Eve. He wants us to know she was mastered by her desire. The Hebrew word in verse 6 for desire, my sources tell me, is a word that's most of the time used in a pejorative sense, which is to say it, it typically means inordinate or selfish desire. It's the word for covet in the 10th commandment. My translation puts it, the tree, she saw the tree to be desired, to make one wise. Other translations say, the tree was desirable. They're pointing to what Eve is feeling as she looks on that which is forbidden. She apparently at one time could look at it and have no desire for it. Verse 6 tells us that's changed. She's wanting what God has forbidden. And so Eve is not just deceived. She's now self-deceived because her desires have overcome her convictions. So this isn't just a head problem. Wrong thinking makes Eve susceptible to deception. No, it's a heart problem. It's wrong wanting. I've said this to you, brothers and sisters, so many times, your head follows your heart. By the grace of God, your heart can be led by your head, but you are the very center of who you are, a wanter, a desirer. That's what you are. The very core of your being. It's your heart. It's what you want. If you want something, it's forbidden. Eventually, that want will master your conviction. The conviction about right and wrong is only as good as your heart's desire. And so keep your heart, brothers and sisters, when you see desires for that which God has forbidden in your life. Repent of your desires. Don't just congratulate yourself. I didn't take and eat. Repent of your desires. Put to death your sinful deeds and desires. Turn from your longing looks, if I may put it that way. What's forbidden? Turn back to God. Who you trust. I did find myself wondering, is there anyone that will be under the preaching of the Word this morning who is right there at the beginning of verse 6? You haven't done it yet. You haven't taken and eaten, but you so want to. Whatever it is, whatever it is, it's forbidden. You know it's forbidden. You once were strongly convinced you would never do it, but now you, you're just there at the beginning of verse six. You want it. and That want left unaddressed, unrepented of, unmortified, as we say will eventually have mastery over your convictions. That's why preachers, after preaching for decades, just up and leave their families, run off with some woman, and they say, yeah, I wanted her. That's what happened, most dramatically. And it happens. Unfortunately, on, tragically, every day. You know, Eve looks... I don't mean this in any disrespectful way. Eve, what, what what we're seeing in verse 6 in Eve is something that's at the root of all sin. It's a very childlike posture. You ever hear a child being denied something by his mother? And that child is very unsophisticated, very open. He He just says, but Mama, I want that. We we have a lot more sophistication the older we get. we got all kinds of reasons. But it comes down to that. I want that. He was showing us what's at the root of all our little apostasies. Well, brothers and sisters, we've been looking at What Genesis 3.6 says about Eve, deceived. And we've done that in order to escape her fate. Taking care to allow ourselves. Taking care who we allow ourselves to listen to. Beware of the tendency to trust our own judgment. Not allow our desires to gain mastery over our convictions. Here's how I'll close These sobering reflections. The only ultimate escape from deception is to know the one who is truth. I've found myself all the more aware of why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you haven't come to know Jesus, you are some degree or another, a deceived man, a deceived woman. You will not break that deception by just a few habits or disciplines of the mind or the heart. You will not. It will only be by coming to the one who is the truth. The church father, Gregory of Nyssa, ninth graders, I expect an amen from this, puts it so beautifully. When a man has been tricked into eating poison, the remedy, even in Gregory's day apparently, is to consume something else. It will counteract the poison. Gregory says, What is a man to do who's poisoned by sin and all of its deceptions? What does he do when he's taken and eaten of sin? You have to take and eat. Faith is a kind of taking and eating of Christ himself. That's the only antidote. Sin and deception. Remember that tonight when you come back. Culminate our day at the Lord's Supper. It's really remarkable, isn't it? Redemption would come to us. The same way judgment came to Eve. Taking and eating Christ death and resurrection take and eat to be delivered from the deception of eve amen let's go to the lord prayer our blessed Antidote to deception and the bondage of it. Lord Jesus, come to us, we pray. Come nearer to us, we would say. Come to us for the very first time today. Be to us truth. Deliver us from the great liar. From our own willful self deception. Have mercy. True one. As we take you by faith into ourselves more and more. Work out of us that which is false. We bless you. You've not left us to be utterly deceived. Lord Jesus, come to us. As we sing, abide with us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.